0: This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Exodus chapter 33. In fact, I want to read just the last Uh, A couple of verses in Exodus 32, where we finished off this morning, uh, just to encourage us a little bit as we go into Exodus 33. This is, I think, part 14 of this study into the life of Moses, and we are coming to the end. There's just a little bit more to go, but not much. And uh, I I trust that as we go through this, and have been going through this, that, that the Spirit of God has been highlighting some things for us to think about. So Exodus, well, you turn to 33, but I'll just read the last couple of verses in 32. The Lord said to Moses, this is verse 33, the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. I therefore go and lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. Now, we said that because of their great sin of making the golden calf and worshiping it and saying this is the God that has brought us out of Egypt, God was very, very angry. And God sent Moses down from the mountain and said, my people has corrupted themselves. And whenever Moses came down from the mountain and saw what they were doing, He too was very, very angry. And we read this morning and we saw how that God then dealt with the people. Thousands of them were slain and killed because of their great sin. And God is still angry. So Moses is not sure if he's finished with his anger and his punishment. And uh, we come in now to chapter 33. Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. And then for the second time, notice he said, And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But note this, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, and you are, you are a stiff-necked or a stubborn people. So twice God said to Moses that I will send my angel before you, but I will not go up in your midst. Now, Moses was not happy with that. The one thing above all that Moses wanted, in spite of all that happened, In spite of God's anger against the sin of his people, Moses wanted God to still be in their midst. Up to this point, since the journey began, he was in their midst. The pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day, and the signs and the wonders and the miracles that were happening, it was obvious to all that God was centrally in their midst. But now God is saying, I'm not going to be in your midst. All right, I'll send an angel in front of you, but I'll not be in your midst. And Moses was displeased with that. He did not want that to happen. Of all things, that was the last thing he wanted to happen. He wanted to know that God's presence was going to be with them all the way into Canaan. That's what he wanted. That's what he was hoping for. That's what he was praying for. And that's what he had plead with God for. Because it was so, so important for him to know that God would be literally present with them in their journey. And so God's presence was very, very important uh, to Moses. uh, Extremely important, and it should be important to us also. Remember David, King David and how that after he sinned with Bathsheba and how he tried to hide that, and for about one year he successfully at least he thought he successfully hid that from everyone, but he couldn't hide it from God. And in God's mercy, he sent Nathan the prophet to confront him so that he could deal with the sin. And he did. And so in Psalm 51 is, is David's great psalm of repentance. This is where he, he prayed this great prayer of repentance. And, and in the midst of it, he said in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. The most important thing in David's repentance was that statement there. Please God, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. By the way, that's the first time the Spirit of God is called holy in Scripture. And David realized the Spirit of God was a holy Spirit of God. But the thing that he wanted most of all was, God, please, please, please do not remove your spirit from me. I need your presence in my life. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. David wouldn't even have cared if God had taken the very kingdom from him. As much as he loved it, the one thing he didn't want was to lose the presence of of God. And Moses is exactly the same. And that ought to tell us that should be a central desire in our lives, that we want God in our lives at the very center of it. And all that we do and how we act and how we think and how we live, that he is to be at the very center, that his presence is to be with us. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned And no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You're a stiff necked people. I would come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now therefore take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you, do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. And so Moses could see that God was taking some time. To make up his mind, as it were, what he was finally going to do. He had threatened to wipe them all out and say to Moses, I'll start a whole new nation with you. But Moses said no, and he pleaded with them. So verse 7, so Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. Now this is not what is normally called the tabernacle in the wilderness, which was a bigger thing, which were the priest officiated in, was the holy place and the most holy place. This was a smaller tent, this was a a private tent, if you will, that Moses made a place where he could meet with God, personally, privately, and he made sure it was well out of the camp, not in the midst of the camp, probably was there in the first place, but now he separated himself, uh, as he felt God had separated himself from him, he separated himself to seek after God, to see what God would do and say. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. And so it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass, when Moses entered the tabernacle, that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. And all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door. And all the people rose and worshipped each man in his tent door. And so the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now we know that God is spirit. uh, So that doesn't mean that God had a physical face that he was looking at. But it just means there was that personal, intimate you know, we talked about talking to each other face to face. It would be nobody else there, but just you'd be you and me talking, and that's the way it was here. And uh, so the Lord spoke to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend, and he would return to the camp. But a servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Notice that Joshua was up the mountain with him, he's in the tent with him, because he was going to be the one that was going to take over from Moses. And so he was going to have this experience in hearing God, what God was saying to Moses. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me, other than, I could say, other than an angel. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Therefore I pray If I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I might know you and that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. Show me now your way that I might know you. I I think it would be safe to say, wouldn't it, having studied so far about Moses that that nobody in the face of the earth knew Moses, more, knew God more than Moses. Nobody in the face of the earth did God speak to like Moses face to face. Nobody was more intimate with God than Moses. Nobody could meet so privately and personally and powerfully than Moses. And yet in spite of all of that, spite of all this time he's been walking with God, he still says, God, show me your ways. I want to know more about you. And that's a good desire to have, isn't it? No matter how long you have been on the road with Christ, our heart should be, Lord, show me your ways. I don't know everything there is to know. I need to know your ways more, better, more understanding of your ways. And so that's what he's praying that I might know you. And the Apostle Paul, away over there in Philippians chapter 3, his desire is something similar. He's talking about those things which were gained to me, I've counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I might gain Christ, and be found him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Then he says, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul's writing this 30 years after walking With Christ, and he's still saying, he's still praying, God, that I might know You more. I don't know enough about You, and I could say that in the New Testament, nobody knew knew more about God than the Apostle Paul. He wrote two thirds of the New Testament. He spent three years in Arabian desert, personally with Christ having revelation. And here he is 30 years later, and he still prayed for more revelation, God, that I might know you more. And then he goes on to say in verse 12, not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended or laid hold of everything, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. After all those years of walking with the Lord, Paul was still hungry to know more of his ways. And should that not be a lesson to every single one of us as believers, No matter how long you have walked with the Lord, there's more to know about him. There's more to be intimate with him than we've ever had been before. That's what these people are saying here. And so, show me your way that I might know you, that I may find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Ah, no talk of the angel here. My presence will go with you and you will have rest. In other words, Moses, everything is going to be all right. Yes, there'll be battles. Yes, there'll be struggles. Yes, there'll be hardships. But because my presence will go with you, you will have rest. If we know the Lord is with us, and that's, that's, That's the thing that we've got to focus on. If you're going through a difficult time, you have to tell yourself, the Lord is with me. His presence is with me. Whether I feel that or whether I don't, the Lord is with me. He has promised he would never leave me. He would never forsake me, even unto the end. And when you do that, it helps to give you rest in the midst of your problems. Then he said to him if your presence does not go with us do not bring us up from here for how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight except you go with us so we shall be separate your people and I from all the people who are upon the face of the earth what Moses is saying is this Lord your presence with us makes us different it separates us from all other nations on earth and that was the truth and if your presence not with us then we're no different than any of the nations of the earth but because your presence is with us that's why we're separate from everyone else God has separated these people from every nation on earth he made a nation of them separated them gave them laws gave them promises made a covenant with them. The Jews are the only people on the face of the earth that God made a covenant with regarding their nation, regarding their land. The only other people God made a covenant with was us, the church, everlasting covenants. And so Moses is reminding God again, this is how intimate he could be with God. He's reminding God, listen, I'm reminding you that because you're with us, that's separate. That's what makes us so different than everybody else. And that's the way you want us to be, different than every other nation. In fact, whenever they would go into Cana, into the promised land, he told them later on, do not make covenants with them, because you're different. I've separated you. In fact, they were to be God's showcase to all of the nations. This is what God will do for you as a nation if you love him and obey him and walk with him. But if you don't, then you're in trouble as a nation. And that's always been the way it is. And so Moses is reminding them that they are a special people chosen by God for a special purpose. And the thing that makes it special is God's presence with them. There's no question that the nation of Israel is a special nation. There's no question that God has separated them and has blessed them above all peoples. Truly, really has. And the wonderful thing about it is it's still happening even to this day. Let me just read you a couple of verses here. In Jeremiah chapter 31, you don't necessarily need to turn to this. In verse 35, it says, Thus saith the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, and the ordinance of the moon, and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea, and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinance depart from me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus saith the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. That's a mighty promise, isn't it? That's God telling them that he has made a covenant with them forever. And unless the sun and the moon and the stars stop shining, That's the way that's going to be. Unless somebody can measure the heavens, which are infinite, unless they can find the very depths, which they can't, then he said, you will be a nation forever. In fact, in Jeremiah 33, towards the end, it says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Have you not considered what these people have spoken, saying, the two families which the Lord has chosen, has he also cast them off? Thus they have despised my people as if they should no more be a nation before, before them. Thus saith the Lord, if my covenant is not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinance of heaven and earth, then I will cast away the descendants of Jacob and David my servant, so that I will not take any of his descendants to be rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will cause their capt- captives to return, and I will have mercy on them. And so the thing that separated Israel and Moses' day, and the thing that separates Israel today is that God is still present with them. Has anybody recently seen a Hivite, a Parasite, a Canaanite, a Jebusite? No. Why? Because they're all gone. But we have seen Jews. After all those thousands of years, they're still here. Why? Because God made a covenant. Why should that tiny little Nation that is only one percent of the land mass of the whole Middle East, there's only less than one half of one percent of the world population. Why should they have an inordinate huh, opposition against them above all other people? Why should that be? It doesn't make any rational sense, it doesn't make any logical sense. It has to be a spiritual reason. It's because the enemy wants to destroy them because he wants to call God a liar. Because if God can't keep his promises to Israel, if God can't keep his covenants with them, why should we believe he'd keep them with us? Amen? But he does keep them with them. And we have seen it over thousands of years. You know, for 1900 years, they weren't even a nation. They were scattered among all of the nations. And then God began to call them. And 1948 made them a nation once again. And so for the first time in 1900 years, no other nation has ever done this. First time in 1900 years, they have their own nation again. They have their own capital again. (laughs) They can pray in their own city again, which they couldn't do for 1900 years. They actually have all of that and more. How did that happen? Because God made that happen. In 1948, there was only 800,000 people in Israel. Today, there's 8.5 million. 3.2 3.2 million of them has come from 130 nations in 70 years and has flooded into Israel, has come back home. All of that has been prophesied through Scripture, which I haven't time to go into tonight. All of it, you can see it in Scripture. And it's happening before our very eyes. Right now it's happening. Why is that? Because God made a promise to them that he would be with them. Now here is a strange thing. They're still an unbelief. Most Jews, most Jews are either atheists or agnostics or secular. That's the ironic thing about it. He has brought them back in unbelief. Apart from Orthodox Jews, if you go to Israel today, most of them, most of them does not believe in God. Isn't that amazing? But yet in his mercy, he brought them back. But one day that's all going to change. Because one day he's going to save them. One day he's going to come to them in a different way. And he's going to save them. Now, individually, they can be saved right now. Individually, they can be led to Christ and increasingly are being led to Christ. That's why there's churches growing up in Israel, Messianic churches, Jews being saved. But nationally, they're the most, one of the most secular nations in the world, definitely one of the most liberal nations in the world. But yet God in his mercy, and even in their unbelief, he's drawn them back every day because he hasn't given up on them. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and he's going to save them. He's going to save them. Paul says, all Israel shall be saved. That's what he says. All Israel shall be saved. Yeah, I don't want to get into this tonight, but if you read the book of Revelation, you're going to find there's going to be one point where 144,000 Jewish evangelists who'll go throughout the world leading people to Christ. Isn't that wonderful? And so God is bringing them back. Why? Because he's made them promises and he's made them covenants and he's going to be in their midst. Whether they know it or not, whether they feel it or not, whether they believe him or not, he's still doing it. He's still bringing them back. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. Do you remember whenever the children of Israel got till they were going to take Jericho? And how the Jerichoites heard that they were coming? Remember how they sent the spies in? And Rahab the harlot told the two spies, we knew you were coming and we were afraid because we knew that God opened the Red Sea for you. And we knew that God destroyed kings for you, so we were afraid. <laughs> so the news had gone out that God was with them. We'd better be careful because God's with them, people. And you know, that's what nations need to understand today, and they don't understand this. The Bible says, whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye. Whoever curses you, then, will I a curse. And so we'd better be careful how we handle Israel because God's watching and God sees them. And God has a plan for them. This is what Paul said in Romans 9 through 11. God has a plan. He hasn't given up on the plan. In fact, he says the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. And he's talking about Israel in Romans 11. That's who he's talking about. They're irrevocable. And so we need to be careful. When people poke at Israel, they're poking the eye of God. And nobody likes their eye poked. Sure they don't. And I don't want to be found poking God's eye. Because then I'm going to be in trouble. And so... They're chosen of God. But what does Peter say? Peter says in First Peter two, verse four, coming to him as living as a living stone. As to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then over the page in verse 9 and 10, he says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now, understand that Peter is writing here to two people. He's writing to Jews and he's writing to Gentiles who were being scattered because of persecution. And so he's letting the Jews know that they're a chosen people, but he's letting the church know that we're a chosen people. Right? But you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. That's us, isn't it? And so God is in the midst of Israel. God is in the midst of his church. The difference is we know God's in the midst of his church. And we'll see this in a moment or two as well. And so the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. (laughs) And then Moses, I mean, this this is just amazing what he said. He said, please show me your glory. Huh show me your glory this is the man that God spoke to through a burning bush this is the man that saw the ten plagues when he held out his rod. this is the man who saw the red sea open this is the man who saw water coming out of a flinty rock this is the man who saw more of the glory of God than any of us had ever seen and could ever see and yet he's not satisfied because he knows there's more And he says, God, please show me your glory. I'm not sure that he knew exactly what he was asking for here. Show me your glory. The glory of God is a powerful thing. In fact, it's so powerful that God said, Moses, I can't show you all my glory. You would never stand it. You couldn't handle it. It would be too much for you. (laughs) You know, in Matthew, well, we'll come to that in a moment or two. Whenever astronauts go out into space and they have to do one of those repairs on the space shuttle and they go out there with their space on, they know, and NASA knows, that if something happens to that space suit, they're toast. Instantly, they're toast. They're gone. Why? Because that environment is not made for them. They couldn't handle it. Their bodies couldn't take it. It's just as simple as that. To be in the full glory of God, in the presence of God, our physical flesh could not take it. It would be too much. It would be beyond what we could handle. And Moses is asking to see God in all his effulgent glory in his ineffable light. (laughs) That's what he's asking. So what does God say? Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face For no man shall see me and live. It's beyond you, Moses. It's just beyond your capability to see my face and to be able to stand in my presence (laughs) that way. If I fully declared all of my glory, you couldn't handle it. Your physical body couldn't take it. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. And so it shall be while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back but my face you shall not see so okay Moses I, I can't show you everything I can't reveal all of my glory you couldn't, you couldn't handle it you would die in fact but I'll tell you what I'll do I'll shield you from most of it and will let you see a bit of it as I pass by just enough that you've never seen before yes you've seen my glory in the burning bush and all those things but i'm going to let you experience what you've never experienced before i'm going to i'm going to let you into some of my presence as much as i think you could handle wouldn't that be something if god would give us as much presence of his presence that he think we could handle <laughs> i don't know if we could handle how much of it but it would be lovely if he did that wouldn't it And so what happened then, he did that. He showed him as much as his presence at that time he could show him. Now, I want to get to a good part in a moment, but if you read down through, and we're not going to read it, but if you read down through chapter 34, you would see that the two tablets of stone that Moses had broken, God says, get two more tablets and bring them up to me in the mountain, and I'll write it over again. So that was a good indicator that God had truly forgiven them and that we're going to move on from here. And then he tells them not to make covenants with other nations when they go into the promised land. And then he tells them, you shall make no more molded images and gods for yourselves. And then he tells them about the Feast of Unleavened Bread and how they were to do that. And then he tells them to uh, to offer up the firstborn of all of their families and all of their flocks. And he tells them then about the Sabbath again and the feast of weeks that are worshiping, and three times a year that all the meals was to come up to Jerusalem and worship God. And so he gives them all these instructions. And he's up there now with God for the second 40 days. So 80 days he's been in the presence of God fasting and taking no food or no water. And it was only the presence of God could help him to do that because it wasn't physically possible to do that. But the glory and the presence of God gave him the energy and the life. Remember, he's been up and down this mountain at least seven times and he's 80 years old. How could he do that? Because of the glory and the presence of God that gave him the extra strength to be able to do all of this. But here's the good part. Verse 29. And it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. Ah. Something, listen to this, something of the glory of God, something of the presence of God Came into Moses when he spent that time with God. He was so intimate, he was so personal, he was so close to God that something of the glory of God saturated even his very skin. I don't know how that happens. But when Jesus and Matthew went up to the Mount of Transfiguration, whenever the disciples saw him, his very face shone. His very clothes were shining. Huh. That's something, isn't it? And so here is Moses. He comes down and he doesn't even know. He doesn't feel anything. But it's evident he's been in the presence of God because his face is shining. We we may not feel the presence of God at times or most times but if we're in his presence and we seek his face, it will be evident to others. Are you with me? It will be become evident to others. My eldest sister and her husband, he was a pastor for many years and a for many years. And they lived uh, just outside Manchester. And they said there was a godly, godly, godly man used to come to them and preach for them. They knew him for years. Single man, an aged man, but a godly man, a a man that fasted and prayed continuously and often came to stay with them. And she told me that in one time he came for a week and stayed with them and he preached uh, for a whole week. Then he left to go somewhere else. And after he left, the day after he left, she says, my little daughter, Sharon, she was only about five or six. She says, I couldn't find her. And I was hunting outside and I was hunting inside. And she was then up the stairs. And I shouted on her, but there was no reply. And she says, then I opened the bedroom doors. She wasn't there. And then I opened the door where he had been. And there she was, just sitting there, quietly. She says, Sharon Darn, what are you doing here? She says, "Mummy, God's here. God's in this room. She says, five or six, God's in this room. She didn't fully understand, but she knew there was something. She felt something in that room where that man had been the presence of God. George Finney, the great evangelist in America many, many years ago, apparently was a very handsome man, too. And he became very famous. And one time he was invited to this factory by the boss who had become a believer. And he was taking him through the factory. There's a factory where a lot of women worked. And they began to whistle at him. Normally the men whistles at the girls. But they began to whistle at him. And he didn't say it, He just turned around and looked at them. And they all froze. And some of them started to cry. Mm-hmm. Such was the presence of God in the man's life that they felt conviction just by looking at them. Peter's shadow. People were being healed by Peter's shadow. I don't think any of us is even close to that but Moses was such in the presence of God that his very skin and his face began to shine and so when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses behold the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him and Moses called to them and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them and, after, and afterwards all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But wherever Moses went in before the Lord, but whenever, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And he, would come out, he came out and would speak to the children of Israel whatever he had been commanded and whenever the children of israel saw the face of moses that the skin of moses' face shone then moses would put on the veil of his the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him now that's strange isn't it moses once they had saw his face shining and and once the fear had worn off because it must have been some sight because it wasn't just a wee glow, it was shining. And once he had spoken to them, then he put a veil on his face so they couldn't see that. And then he would go in to speak to God in the tent. He'd take the veil off. More of God's presence would come on. And then he would come out and he'd put the veil on again. Why did he do that? Why, why, why did he take the veil off? Or put the veil on? And take it off when he met with God. Why did he do all of that? Why not just keep it off? Surely them seeing that shining face would be something, wouldn't it? So why did he cover it? Well, the Apostle Paul in Second Corinthians chapter 3 the Apostle Paul gives us some insight into this, exactly why he did this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and if you would turn to that, it would be good just to see this. We're winding up. Paul's speaking to the Corinthians here in this particular portion, and he's warning them and showing them about the legalists. Now, remember the church, now the church was a church that its foundation was grace, not the law, but grace. When Christ came, he fulfilled the law. Now the is built on grace. But remember at this time, there was still the temple, there was still the priesthood, there was still all that until AD 70 when the Romans came in and destroyed all of that. And then the priesthood was gone, the temple was gone, they could make no more sacrifice, it was all gone. But up to then, it was still rolling on. The Jews still performed the rituals, right? But there were some of the Jews who had become believers, but then they became legalists. And what they were saying was simply this. Listen, it's fine you being a Christian. It's fine you following Christ and being saved and all of that. But to be truly saved, you have to follow the law of Moses too as well. They were became legalists. And Paul says no. And that's why they had the big Jerusalem council in Acts 15. Because there were so many Gentiles getting saved and the Jews were saying well that's fine you Gentiles getting saved but you have to follow the law of Moses like us and Paul says no no way it's built on grace now so don't you become legalists and that's what they were doing especially in in Galatian church the Judaizers but they're at it here too among the, the Corinthians and so Paul's trying to deal with that so in order to deal with all of that he refers back to what we have just read So let's just read a little bit into here. Well, let's read in verse 4. And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who has also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. All right. You see, the old law in the Old Testament, which Christ fulfilled, that law was to change men's conduct, but it couldn't change their character. It couldn't change them on the inside. But grace under the new covenant changes men and women on the inside. Gives us the power to live right. Gives us the power not to live a sinful life anymore, but to live for Christ. That's what it does. That's what grace does. But then he goes on to say, but if the ministry of death, which was the law, written and engraved in stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily on the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. Ah. You see, Moses put the veil over his face because he knew that that glow, that glory would be passing away until he went into the presence of God again. And he didn't want them to see that that would pass away. Actually, it would be hundreds and hundreds of years before the glory of the old law would pass away and we would have the glory of grace, which would be all-surpassing, which would never pass away. So... Moses, or Paul is using this thing with Moses to show this in the New Testament. Only Paul could do this, by the way. He was an absolute genius. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, and the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory, for even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For what is for what if what was passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. So, in other words, yes. The Old Testament covenant had some glory. In fact, the glory that it had even in Moses' day was shining in Moses' face. So it had some glory, but it's far exceeded by the glory of Christ. The gospel exceeds all of that. It's far more glorious than all of that. Are you still with me? You're not too sure, are you? Yeah. For of what was passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Now, whether Moses knew that one day that would pass away and a new covenant, he knew that a Messiah would come. But whether he knew all the details or not, or whether he did it under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, but what he did was right. Because that, even though it was glorious, was all going to pass away. Because Christ would come with the gospel, and his gospel would be more glorious, and it would excel all of that in the Old Testament. Are you with me now? But their minds were blinded. Here's the second thing he's bringing out of that incident. But their minds were blinded, for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. That is exactly true today. And that's why there are very few Jews being saved, considering their population. Very few. Why? Because there's a veil. They just don't get it. They can't see it. And it's hard, too, by the way, for Jews to accept this, because all through history, Jews have been persecuted, and many, many times, by the very Church of Christ. So when you mention cross to them, you mention Christian to them, you mention the gospel to them, you mention Jesus Christ to them, the haggles will rise because they're thinking, but you lot persecute us for years, for centuries. For centuries you persecuted us. Avi Misraki, the Jewish pastor that preached from this very pulpit not so long ago, I heard him in Jerusalem saying this. He says, when I was a wee boy at school, before I ever became a believer, when I was a wee boy at school, when it came to arithmetic, the hardest job was to write the plus sign because it reminded us of the cross. And he says it was so offensive to us because we were the, we were the Christ killers. That's what we were called when we were wee boys. Christians called us Christ killers. So you can imagine how hard it is for them to accept, right? And so when they come to even read the Bible, there's a veil over them they can't see it. Unless and until the Spirit of God opens their eyes to it. And thank God he is doing that. And more and more are becoming believers. And then when the Bible opens to them and then their eyes are truly open, then they see things they never saw before. Then Isaiah 53 becomes alive to them. You say, well, how could a, a Jew read Isaiah 53 and not understand it's talking about Christ? But they don't. They think it's talking about the nation of Israel. But when they get saved, they get born again. Then suddenly, their eyes are open and they can see it. So right now, there's a veil. There's no veil over us. We can see. But listen to this. Here's the third thing he brings out of that. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, that's us, with unveiled face... Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of God. Let me just read you a little verse in James. In James 1, a couple of verses just... Verse 22, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. For anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer. He is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of a man he was. Excuse me. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, and continues in it, he is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word. This one shall be blessed in what he does. So James is saying, when you look into a mirror, right, maybe you're going to go to work and men, we want to get shaved or whatever. You ladies, you're going out for the night, you want to get your, your lipstick on. And if you're Rachel Lappin, it would be your red lippy. That's a must. And then you, you get it all done up, right, and you get your tie straight and your dress on. And then you go out of the room and then you think, oh let me just check that again. And you get back in again and you forgot and you have to look again to make sure it's perfectly right. You maybe do that two or three times before you leave the house. That's what a natural mirror is like. But Paul says, Paul says here, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory so here is our mirror believer the word and we look into this mirror right we don't see ourselves we see Christ this reveals Jesus Christ to us and we see his glory and the more we look at him and the more we focus on him the more we think about him the more we talk to him, guess what? That reflects on us. The more like him we become. We become like the one we're looking in the mirror. Not at ourselves, but at him. We become like him. That's what the mirror of God's word does. We see him. And then that reflects on us. And then we become more Christ-like. So some of the glory of Christ comes on us. And we may not always be aware of that. But we should be different, separate, so that others will see Christ in us, the hope of glory. Are you still with me? And so, the presence of God, it's wonderful in the times when you sense his presence and feel his presence. But we don't always. But it's wonderful if we do. But if we spend time in his presence and in his book looking into this mirror, then we will become like him. And his presence will be in us and on us. It'll be there. And somebody you might not even know will recognize something's different about you. Something's different. Tammy told us just the other week. She was standing, it was a bus stop or something. A lady came to you, didn't know him from Adam, started to talk. And then just gave her whole life story to family. And then she says, I, there's, I knew there was something different about you. What is that? That's the glory of God. It's not a big shining light, but it's something that's in us that's attractive. If we're living right, and we're looking into this mirror and becoming what we see in here, then it's different. Now, sometimes, for instance, maybe you're thinking, we, we know that God loves us, don't we? We know that, we know that. We've experienced that. We know it through the word of God. We know it through the promise. We know God loves us. But there's moments. There's moments when you become aware of it. When it's real to you. Maybe as you're listening or singing a hymn or listening to a song or reading the scripture in the prayer meeting or in the here, your hands raised. But at that moment, suddenly you know and experience the love of God on you and in you suddenly it's heightened that God truly loves me and it's wonderful when you sense that so you're sensing that right and it's the same with the presence of God there's times for whatever reason you sense that God is near that God is close there's something different happening at that moment it may be in a moment of prayer a moment of worship reading your Bible whatever driving along in your car and suddenly there's something different it's the presence of God and we need that more don't we we need more of the presence of God in our lives. And it's lovely when it happens. I would that it would happen much more. Amen. And so Moses had such a presence of God in his life that his very face shone. Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, was such in the presence of Almighty God the Father that his face was shining, his very clothes were shining. If we could just get a little bit of the glory of God in our lives even a little bit, so that others knows the difference. There's something different about you. There's something different about you in that office or you in that class or you in that workplace or you wherever. There's something different about your life. It's just there. It's just there. It's the presence of God. So we need God's presence every day, don't we? And that's what we should pray for. God, be present in my life to the extent where others will sense something about me that will draw them to Christ and the more we look into this mirror of God's word then the more of him will reflect on us outward to others amen let's pray Lord we desperately need more of your presence in our lives in our services in our service In our community, wherever we are, Lord, let us be the light of the world that shines in a dark place. So, Lord, let your grace and your goodness that you put in us flow from us to touch the lives of others. We thank you, Lord, for what we read in your word the challenge of it, the encouragement of it, We pray, Lord, that you'll bless and minister in each of our lives, in our workplace, in our school place, in our home, or our community, wherever we are. Lord, that the light of Christ will shine through us, that your presence will be in us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast.